So tonight my intention is to cover Acts chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. If you want to turn over there, you can. Um, going through the book of Acts is, is, is one of the very interesting books in the Bible. There are many of them in there, but there's, it's just there's so much action in it. And um, we, we've seen the day of Pentecost and all the miracles of the Holy Spirit coming in and we saw 3,000 people saved at Peter's first sermon. And um, we, we've seen the lame man at the gate of Jerusalem healed. And now we have Peter getting ready to present his second sermon. So, so you can use, go into your imagination here a little bit. Peter and John going up to that temple. It was a very courageous act. We talked about this last week. All those things that went on, the miracle happened. And now we've got all these people in the temple coming around John and Peter, wanting to know what happened to this guy. This is kind of where we left off last week. What happened to him? And it really burdened me a little bit when I read through that because it just didn't seem to fit. What happened? If he had been able to walk and everybody knew him and he had been in a car accident and then he couldn't walk anymore, I would say something like, what happened to him? But being healed and now able to walk, my question would more likely be, who did that? Who was your doctor? What procedure did they use? How can they do this? How can this be? And I had a hard time putting that together in my mind. But the question they were asking wasn't about the man's physical condition. They may not have known it. It may have been the Holy Spirit. But there's something that happens to us in that salvation process where we become Christians. It happens to us. What happened to him is he met Jesus. When that happened, faith became real. The heart was regenerated. Belief was possible. The healing happened as well. But the eternal thing was the salvation. So let's, let's never forget that. Every time someone believes, it's a miracle. There's a supernatural act there. We get hung up in the miracles of the physical, and it's hard not to. Many of us have seen miracles or what we would call miracles. It wasn't like John and Peter came by and healed someone, but we saw people, we've seen people with terrible illnesses that are able to overcome, some mysteriously even. But the real miracle is in salvation. Let's, let's never forget that. So now Peter's beginning his second sermon, and there are similarities and differences between these two sermons. Peter's mission here is the same. He's trying to point people to Christ. He's fulfilling the Great Commission. So if you will, please stand, and we'll jump in at verse 12 in chapter 3, and I'm going to read through verse 16. This is the infallible word. 
of the living God. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the portico called Solomon's full of wonder. That's verse 11. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the author of life whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man, whom you see and know, and the faith which is through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. This is your word, Father. Use it in our lives to advance your kingdom. I pray that this service brings honor to you. Please allow something that, something that is said this evening to impact the lives in a positive manner. Father, we love you and we pray that your will be done this evening. And this prayer is in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. So in verse 12, when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this and why do you gaze at us? As if our own power or piety, we had made him walk. The crowd is gathered. They want to know what has happened to the lame beggar. And Peter takes full advantage of this opportunity. He takes full advantage of all these people coming together once again to bring his message. A miracle has happened and a crowd gathered, very much like we saw on the day of Pentecost. He takes advantage, he tells them about this phenomenon. Peter's main mission in these first words is to make it crystal clear that this is not about him and John. Him and John did not do this. Why do you look at us? We're, we're, we didn't do this. I didn't do this. He realizes that he has to put an end to these people looking at him and at John as though they're some kind of all-powerful miracle man, miracle workers, healers, and they want to bring glory to Christ in this. When he, when he questions them about why do you marvel at this and why do, you, why do you gaze at us, Peter knows that if they truly knew the God of their fathers, they would not have been surprised in this manner. They would have immediately given credit to, this is a God thing. I don't know how it happened. I don't know all the details here, but only God could have healed this man in this way. Martin Lloyd-Jones places this verse in layman's words very, very well. He says, and it's a little bit comic in a way, but it's very sincere in another. He says, we are not miracle workers. We do not have some strange power such as other people claim to have. You must not explain it like that. Neither must you attribute the healing to some extraordinary piety on our part. 
Our own power, our own holiness, our own goodness did not do this. Indeed, in a sense, it's really got nothing to do with us. Do not look at us. Look at Jesus. That, that message is very clear coming from Peter. Something I would like to, to note here is there's similarities and differences, like I said, between this sermon and the sermon of the day of Pentecost. But there's a big difference in the crowds here. The Bible does not mention any scoffers in this crowd at the temple. And we don't really have a good reason where they went, why they weren't there. But don't you think that a healing of this nature, a man who has never walked in his life since birth, he's had this affliction. Not only are his legs healed, they are strengthened. Not only is his affliction cured, but he knows how to walk, even to the point that he's leaping around. Who's going to scoff at that, right? Maybe the scoffers were there, but they didn't say anything this time. God's hand in the miracle probably had a level of undeniability. However, we will learn as we go forward in the verses that many are saved during this, but not all. Verse 13 reads, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. And Peter is introducing these Jewish people to the God that they think they know, but they do not actually know. Everybody realizes that the Jews held the Old Testament scriptures. That was their Bible in that day, right? Even today, the Orthodox Jews are still Old Testament only, if you will. And they had the Old Testament then. And you see language like this. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is Old Testament language. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, to ensure that the miracle is directed toward God, the God that they think they know but know not. These terms are reminding them of the covenant faithfulness that God has shown to the Jews over the centuries. Using these words in this manner, Peter is connecting God the Father to God the Son in Christ. And we've heard clearly that they did deny Christ. The title of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is used in various places. Exodus 3, verse 6, verses 15 and 16 as well. Here God uses this title and identifies himself to Moses talking about himself from a burning bush. And we see those verses referred to in Matthew 22 and Acts chapter 7. 1 Kings chapter 18, we have Elijah there with the prophets of Baal. And when he calls upon God, he uses this title. First Chronicles 29, David uses this title. When he blesses Yahweh for providing the materials for the temple. In 2 Chronicles chapter 30, King Hezekiah uses this title. 
in his letters that he writes, inviting all the Israelites back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover for the first time in many, many years. Ultimately, Peter is teaching this crowd that God is a God who reveals himself. This was true through the Old Testament scriptures in that day, but also through Jesus Christ's ministry. And today, God reveals himself to us through his holy word, the Bible. This is God's revelation for us. This is him speaking to us. You want to know what God's will is? It's in here. The entire purpose of the Bible is the revelation of God to his people. We have the word servant used here. And the Greek word for that is spelled P-A-I-S. And I do not know how that's pronounced. P-A-I-S. That describes Jesus as God's personal representative or ambassador. And I thought servant as a representative or an ambassador, that just really doesn't fit. But if you look in Isaiah 52, the Greek Septuagint uses this word. And it says, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. High and lifted up and greatly exalted. We're not talking about just any slave here, right? My servant, God's servant. This goes on in Isaiah 53 where we have the... uh, the verses of the, the suffering servant. And this was written 700 years before Christ. Plus or minus, take a few. Listen to this. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of the parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced. Through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our, of our peace fell upon him, and his, by his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned on to his own way, but Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation. Who considered that he was cut off for the land of the living. That for the transgression of my people. Striking was due to him. So his grave was assigned with wicked men. And yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If you would place his soul as a guilt offering, he will see his seed. 
He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, we, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear the iniquities. Therefore I will divide for him a portion with many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. 700 years before Christ lived, this was put to paper. Certainly, before Christ came, some of this was probably a mystery in a lot of ways to the Jewish people. Certainly, they probably didn't foresee all of the events that came when Christ was crucified. But when it actually did happen, these verses really should have come home to them. Isaiah was part of the Old Testament that they had. Isaiah was a familiar writing. Obviously, these verses are prophetic in the coming of the Messiah and were fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament testifies of Jesus' status as a servant as well. Matthew 20, 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. as a servant. John 13, verses 1 through 7, is one of the most servant-oriented things that one could do in that day. Christ girded himself with a cloth, and he washed the disciples' feet. The washing of the feet was a servant's task. It was not something the head of the household would do normally. But he came to serve. So these people, um, they, they really must have thought they were done with Jesus. And then this guy appears in the temple who's been healed. And Peter introduces them to God the Father, whom they think they know. And then he connects him to Jesus Christ, whom they thought they were finished with. Interesting circle of events. Next in this verse, we find the word you, Y-O-U, we spent some time at the house last night talking about reading words and understanding words and what they say. And The word you here is the second person plural. I don't know if that means a whole lot to, to people. But when they say you, it's like me talking to the crowd. All of you. You. Everyone here. You is the second person. It's not me. Third person would be They. But this word is used four times in the next four verses. And it's used as an indicting word. You handed him over, delivered him to, depending on which uh, translation you have. You disowned him or you denied him. You disowned, you denied the holy and the righteous one. You killed the author of life. Some translations say the prince of life. Peter's using this pronoun makes this very personal, very intentional, and very direct. These are indictments against a crowd, not just one person. 
And Peter is clearly and forcefully indicting the crowd for their gross sin of executing the Messiah, the one that they had been waiting on. And this isn't the first time he's done that. You heard me talk about this before. He wants them to see their sin as not just being against Jesus, but against the holy God, the one that they think they know. With action from the Holy Spirit, Peter's hope is that regeneration of the heart will begin and that salvation will occur, will occur for as many in this crowd as the Father will, will give to Christ. It's a big deal. This person's been healed. It's a miracle and it's hard to get over that. But the mission the whole time is about salvation. It's about reaching the lost. It's about bringing those that God has given to Christ into the fold. John MacArthur talks here, he's, he explains the scenario very well. He says, Pilate was well aware that the crucifixion was a blatant injustice. He declared Jesus innocent no less than six times. He repeatedly sought to release him throughout the latter part of chapter 23. Even his wife recognized Jesus's innocence and you have to understand something Pilate as a Roman had grown up in a tradition where the justice actually did mean something to them it's not that he was necessarily what one would call a wicked leader justice meant something to him but yet he gave the order to condemn an innocent man the God-man to the cross. Why did he do that? He caved to himself over doing what was right. The Jewish authorities had already reported him once for some infraction, and here we have them again threatening him. They'll go to the. They'll go over your head. And he caved to the pressure. He said, I can't do that. I don't want to lose my position. I don't want to get fired. I've got a pretty good gig here. Take him away. Where was I here? As a Roman, he came from a people with a strong tradition of justice. And I'm still in a quote here for MacArthur. Sorry, I got out in left field a little. Uh, to condemn a man he believed innocent went against that tradition, yet Pilate had no choice. The Jewish leaders had him backed in a corner. They had already complained to Rome and put his position in jeopardy. Another complaint would possibly have cost him his position. And Mark Arthur goes on to say even pagans such as Pilate's wife and the Roman centurion recognized what Israel could not, that Jesus was innocent and righteous. Peter's indictment of them was devastatingly direct. The verses go on and say, but you denied the holy and righteous one. And I'm going to take a moment here to tell you how much our language has changed in the last two centuries. If you look up holy in today's Webster's Dictionary, you're going to read things like dedicated to religious use. One even said spiritually pure. You've got a number of definitions. 
One definition said, regarded with or deserving deep respect, awe or reverence. And then it even gave me a slang option. That holy is a generalized intensive adjective such as in holy smoke. It even gave me that as a definition. That's the Webster's Dictionary of today. If you go to the Webster's Dictionary of 1828, the word holy defined means proper, whole, entire perfection in a moral sense. Holy means pure in heart, temper, or disposition. Holy means free from sin and sinful affections. Holy is a word that is applied to our supreme being, is the way it's worded. And then it goes on, and it says, We call a man holy when his heart is confirmed in some degree to the image of God. Synonymous with godly or pious is what holy means. And then it closes out with a reference. 1 Peter 1.16, Be ye holy, for I am holy. It's the Webster's Dictionary. Our culture today, many definitions have changed many words. Words have been stolen. Words have been destroyed. They've been devalued. They've been redefined. And if you're listening to the news or you're listening to the TV or even a commercial, if you're reading the newspaper, you really need to be careful about what you're reading, what you're hearing, and truly understand what they mean by the words they're speaking or writing. Because things have changed. The game has changed. The table has turned. The world today is upside down. Prophet Isaiah prophesied about the arrival of this. I'm sure he saw this in his own time. But in Isaiah chapter 5, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I mean, think about it. We have normalized men marrying men, women marrying women. It's on every other commercial on TV. It's in every sitcom that you sit down to watch. And even we as Christians who may embrace that as not being the right way for marriage to be conducted, the right way for you to live your life, we have even normalized it to some degree. It doesn't take our breath anymore when we see it. perfectly acceptable to kill a baby before they are born at any time during the pregnancy for any reason in the opinion of many of our leaders. Woe unto you if you break an eagle's egg. You're going to go to jail for a long time if you kill a baby. It's a good thing, right? I mean, that's the way it's prompted out there. It's, it's a good thing. It's now a vogue thing to call the transgender movement normal. It's not been that long ago that uh, everyone revered it as a, a mental condition. The medical society still referred to it as that. But society itself says it's normal and we need to embrace it normalize it and help accommodate it. And it's perfectly fine with society if children are mutilated in the name of diversity and inclusion. 
children not old enough to really be making decisions. I mean, let's be real. You can't vote until you're 18. You're not responsible enough to push the button at the ballot box. You can't buy alcoholic beverages till you're 21. You can't buy tobacco products until you're 20. I mean, there's all kinds of limitations out there on people because you're not old enough to be responsible in the decisions that you're making. But yet we're allowing children without their parents' permission to make decisions that are gonna change their life forever and this is normal and this is good. And, the, and the, one of the most recent ones that struck me is those people who scream tolerance the, loud, the loudest of all. Those people who point their finger at the Christian community and say you're not tolerant are the very ones marching in the street with all the hate for Israel right now. They're the very same people. I'm not sure what the word tolerant means anymore. If that's tolerance, what does it mean? Jackie and I were catching a few minutes of the news the other night and there's Fox News, who's supposed to be conservative, okay? And they're talking about this lady soccer player. I wrote her name down here. Rapino, does that ring a bell? Got pink hair. Rapino. So she got hurt in her last game and made a public announcement that this is proof that there is no God. When in actuality, it's proof that there is one. You know, I mean that in a joking way. Injuries, illness, are a result of a fallen man in a perfect garden before a perfect God. But when those happened, when that sin happened, injuries started to be. If there was no God, you see where I'm going? I don't know, at a minimum, the world is in a state of limited chaos, and I say limited because... It'll only go as far as God will allow it. There is someone in control. So there's a day coming when every knee shall bow and every knee or every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's in that day that his children will be rewarded with everlasting life. The lost will suffer for all eternity. And I pray that this woman's heart will be regenerated and she'll repent and revere the one true God. I would, I would be glad for no one to go to hell. We the people of God are the evil ones now because we want to maintain some level of biblical purity. Because we want to live our life in some level of compliance with the Ten Commandments and all the other teachings that we have in the Bible. We're the intolerant one for desiring to become more and more like Jesus Christ, who, when you read about him, was the most tolerant person you could ask for. How quickly would he be crucified if he were here today physically?
Peter continues his indictment of the Jews by stating, but you disowned and denied. God sent the Christ to bless them. The sons of the covenant, the ones that held the very oracles of God. But they denied him. Peter uses the terms the holy and righteous one. And this use of these words would resonate with the Jews. They've heard this before. The scriptures use this description for the Messiah in various places. Psalm 16 reads, For you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your holy one over to see corruption. The Holy Spirit through Peter stresses this word. The word righteous also is used in numerous places to describe the Messiah. Isaiah 53, Jeremiah 23 and 33, Zechariah 9. We defined holy earlier. Now I ask, do you know what righteous means? Righteous carries with it the meaning of innocent of any crime. No guilt at all in any law. Truly righteous means that you've kept all of God's commandments. Righteous is a fitting name for Jesus Christ. Only he has accomplished this task and there will be no other. Through Christ's sacrificial death we are declared righteous if we are saved, as Jesus Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, how unworthy am I that my king would die for me, my sin would be put on him, and his righteousness given to me? That doesn't even make a good knights in the king's court story. The king died for his people. Man could not have even made that up. This is the truth. Another item worth a brief discussion here, and, and uh, I really got lost in this one when I was studying it because it's, it's very profound, but it says, and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. You see, Pilate offered to let Jesus Christ go free as he found no guilt in him. Okay? The Jews had a custom where a prisoner would be released on Passover. And I'm sure that Pilate thought in his mind, I'm not sure how I'm going to get out of it, but I think that if I, I'm going to offer to let Jesus go, or you can have Barabbas. Okay, who's Barabbas? Barabbas is, is a murderer. He's an insider of violence. Legend has it that he's just a nasty man. A person that if you're walking down the sidewalk and he's coming to you, you would go to the other sidewalk across the street to get away from him just to make sure there's no encounter and you know there's a good possibility he's going to cross the street if he sees you doing it. He's a menace. He's a tyrant. So Pilate stands before the Jews and says, okay, which one do you want me to set free? You want Jesus 
Or do you want Barabbas? And they chose to turn the tyrant loose, the gangster loose, into the streets of Jerusalem and kill the Christ. The Jews' hatred for Jesus was so great that they would prefer to release a murderous gangster. Plainly speaking, they released a murderer to become murderers. Peter moves forward with his sermon stating that they had executed the author of life. And in some translations, we see terminology like the prince of life. And we find the same Greek word translated as leader in Acts 5. So you could possibly say the leader of life. And it's used, it's translated founder in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 12. So it'd be the founder of life. And this is very fitting even of the things that Jesus spoke about himself. He made the claim himself. John 14, 6 reads, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Again, John chapter 11, verse 25, he states, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, live even if he dies. John himself wrote in his gospel of John Chapter 1, verse 4, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So, so we're going to have to get real with ourselves here for a minute. Peter says, you killed the author of life. That's the indictment against them. Statement is true. But men really can't kill the author of life. You see, Jesus himself told us that no one can actually kill him, that he will lay his life down himself. For in John 10, it says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one takes it away from me, but from myself I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. He would have hung there on that cross for years until he decided to die. No man can take it away from him. If it had taken years to forgive his people, he would have hung there that long. So the message is clear. The source of life is stronger than any cross. It's stronger than any tomb that can be dug. The formerly lame man is walking due to the fact that Christ is alive. That he is risen. He's not dead. He's still doing stuff. Look at this. Who else could have done this? Peter goes on here to proclaim that he and John are witnesses of the risen Christ. They, they not only saw him, they communed with him. I kind of like that word, communed with him. They had a meal with him. They simply talked with him. This is the time when Christ looks at Peter and asks him three times, do you love me? Do you really love me? Feed my sheep. 
I'm going to be honest with you, it's, it, it may be easy for a man to stand up here and tell you what these verses say and what all the meanings are. It's a hard thing to tell the personal truth of it all. Yes, the Jews are guilty of handing Christ over to Pilate and demanding his crucifixion. And yes, even though Pilate saw innocence in Christ, he put himself before justice. He tried to wash his hands of the matter, but ended up giving the orders to crucify him. So yes, he's guilty. The guards that nailed him to that cross and put the spear in his side, yes, they're guilty. But do you know who else is guilty? We are. Sins that we have committed. We may have been one standing in that street screaming crucify him. We may have been may as well have been a scoffer at the day of Pentecost, a denier. That's when he hung on that cross, he died for me. And if you're a believer in him, he died for you as well. Christ had to die for our sins. The wrath of God was poured upon him for our sins. Don't just point your finger at the Jews or at Pilate or the guards. Don't just point your finger at Adam and Eve. Point your finger at yourself. On the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which is through him has given him the perfect health in the presence of you all. So Peter's transitioning into the second part of his sermon here. And this will be the last verse I cover tonight. He's ended his indictment against the listeners to a large degree. And he now fully expects that the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit is going to go to work on these people that are listening. Regeneration is beginning. Conviction has set in. And the Holy Spirit is at work here. And Peter now begins to guide them to salvation in Jesus' name. And there are two things active in this man's healing. Faith. Faith is one, and the name of Jesus is the other, the power of Jesus. Ultimately, this power healed this man, not Peter or John's. We've talked this through. But it's by faith he was healed. Whose faith? Whose faith was it? It was Peter and John's, right? Did the beggar have faith? When he was healed, did he have faith, really? Or did faith come along with the healing? John MacArthur states, The faith in view here is not that of the beggar, but of Peter and John. Although occasionally faith of the one being healed is noted, the New Testament gift of healing operated through the faith of the healer rather than one being healed. To tell those who are not healed that is because they lack faith to be healed is just one more gross misinterpretation of the biblical nature of apostolic healing. We have these faith healers out here, word, faith, movement, you call it prosperity gospel, whatever you want to call it. 
and we talked about this some last week, preying upon the poorest among us, the des most desperate among us, those people who are truly ill with terrible disease, going to these places, these events, and giving all the money that they have in hopes of being healed, and you've got this pretender up here who could only wish that he had an ounce of the power to do anything that Christ did. It was by faith in the resurrected, glorified Jesus that the apostles were able to perform these miracles. And Peter is claiming Jesus' authority over illnesses, afflictions, even death. Jesus had always claimed a unique authority. Matthew chapter 5, he said, You have heard, but I say. Unique authority above the existing teaching of the Jewish leaders. Matthew chapter 4 and chapter 9, he instructs several of the apostles, follow me. And they didn't ask questions. They left their lives behind and followed him. Unique authority. John chapter 10, he did not hesitate to say, I and the Father are one. Unique authority, unique relationship to God. John chapter 8 states that he's the light of the world. What a unique status. What a claim. To give his life as a ransom for many in Mark chapter 10. What a unique price to pay. Jesus claims to be the savior of the world and that's just a unique status and work. The hill beggar was living proof that the people's original evaluation of Jesus was just flat wrong. I'm going to close this with a paragraph from Charles Spurgeon. In his commentary on the book of Matthew, it says, The Lord of glory is born the Son of Man and is named by God's command and by man's mouth, Jesus the Savior. He is what he is called. He saves us from the punishment and the guilt of sin and then from the ill effect and evil power of sin. And this he does for his people in the fact that his very name is Jesus, Savior. We still call him by that name for he still saves in these latter days. Let us go and tell out his name among men for he will save others even today. The name of Jesus, the power of Jesus, healed this beggar. He saved the 3,000 at the Pentecost. He's getting ready to save a bunch more. We'll get into that next week. Let us not forget. I spend too much time dwelling on things I've done wrong in my past. I do. And that's wrong of me to do that. It's something I'm working on. But we should never forget that we too were once lost, lame, beggars in search of a Savior. We should never forget that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and for what you teach us and ask that you help us to apply these words to our life. 
Father, I thank you for this church, and I thank you for each family that is represented here. And I pray that you'll bless them mightily. Your dedication is appreciated. Father, I pray for this church. There's some decisions going on right now, and I think you've laid a path before us. But we, we need you to, we just need your blessing upon it, Lord. We thank you for providing for us the way that you have. And we know that you will continue to do so. Father, bring us back at the next appointed time. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.